welcome to uh, again another interview of uh, FSAS, and this time with uh, Professor Matthew McCartney, uh, currently in London. We had um, we really wanted him to come uh, to Amsterdam, but uh, as 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 we all know, the COVID situation with the new variant uh, has. Uh, not been helping so that's why we're doing this uh, online uh professor matthew mccartney welcome thank you very much lovely to be back i've, I've met fsas on a number of occasions before but it's lovely to see you again even if as you point out only virtually no uh, thank you for joining and uh very nice of you to join on on a rather short notice uh just to give a small introduction of yours again correct me where uh, I'm, I'm i'm wrong because you have done a lot in 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 life, uh, you've you've lived at various places. But Matthew, the Professor Matthew McCartney has spent twenty years as an academic at SOAS, at University of London, at uh, the University of Oxford. He has also been a visiting professor at universities in China, Pakistan, India, Japan, South Korea, Poland, and Belgium. Uh, he's in essence a development economist. Uh, and with the teaching and research specialization in the economic development of India and Pakistan after uh, independence after 1947. Um, you have also worked previously for the World Bank, USAID, EU, UNDP, uh, in places like Botswana, Georgia, Bangladesh, Azerbaijan, Egypt, Jordan, Bosnia, Zambia, uh, so you've, you've traveled a lot. But I also used to deliver newspapers when I was a teenager. But that, I think that's quite comprehensive. And of course, your um, your background is in economics uh, yes. from the University of Cambridge, and and, and uh, from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in economics from uh, SOAS. Yes, that's that's right. Yes. Okay, and then. Of course, one of the reasons, of course, that we have invited you, we, we have met you before in the in the EU Parliament when we had a conference on on CPAC. Uh, one of the reasons which triggered this as well is that you have lately, just a few weeks ago, I think, a few months ago, you've published your new book. It's a it's a research based uh, uh, on and in uh, China and Pakistan. And the book is uh, The Dragon from the Mountains, the CPAC from Kashgar to Badr, published by uh, Cambridge University Press in 2021. Um, yeah, you have, of course, sent us the book um, and, and, and we haven't received it yet, but we did find a way of reading it. So I've been through it and, and other people at the office have been through it. So a few of those things uh, we will discuss. But first of all, as I've told you, it's a, quite a free-flowing interview. It's not only about what is happening in the world and, and, and we want your analysis on it. We also want to know who Matthew McCartney is. Um, currently, you're working at Charter Cities Institute based in Washington while you're based in London. Um, so if you could just tell us about the work you're doing currently and the institution you work for. So let's see, let me, probably easier to start off with um, the institution I'm working for. So Chartered City Institute is uh, an organization that was inspired by some presentations and some work done by the Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Romer 
uh, about 10 or so uh, years ago. Um, one of Paul Romer's big arguments was that cities are very important for economic growth, for knowledge exchange, for agglomeration externalities, uh, for high levels, generating higher levels of productivity. Uh, but cities are quite often rather dysfunctional in developing countries. You know, one can talk about knowledge exchange, but if one is stuck in a traffic jam in somewhere like um, uh, Mumbai or, or Bangalore, you know, the idea of you know, being easily able to meet up with people and exchange knowledge is, you know, is, is you know, it's a very difficult one. So his idea, he focused on, on the idea of building new cities um, uh, with a kind of better set of institutions, new laws, new regulations, as a way of promoting uh, efficient urbanization, urbanization that is more conducive to promoting growth, development, and poverty creation. Uh, and the organization that I'm currently working for are taking forward that idea. Um, they have researchers such as myself who are, are, are doing the original research. Um, they also have lawyers and uh, urban planners who are on the ground and advising uh, governments in, in various countries. So they recently had a team returning from Zambia. And what is, I think, very interesting about this organization is that they're engaging with something, urbanization, which I think to most people, it'd be fairly obvious urbanization is an important part of economic growth and development, but it's a concept which is strangely neglected by economists. Now, as a development economist, as I've been for more than 20 years, one can spend several decades talking about economic development, but never actually mention urbanization. So I talk about you know, agriculture and industry and employment and technology and foreign investment, uh, state intervention, industrial policy, et cetera, et cetera, but not really ever urbanization. You don't see the idea of cities, of urbanization. It's just not something you find in a, a textbook about economic development. I mean, yes, geographers talk about it a lot, or sociologists or anthropologists, but not really economists. So this is a kind of, it's a big missing piece of my jigsaw um, as a development economist. So the idea of uh, bringing the idea of urbanization into my thinking, into my research is kind of quite a fascinating one. So in most respects, I'm continuing with the research I've been doing over a fairly long period of time, South Asia, India, Pakistan, comparative uh, um, uh, industrialization and so on, employment, but I'm now adding to that thinking about urbanization. And, and you, you are, of course, as you, as you mentioned, you're a development economist, um, you could that you could you could have been specializing on Africa, South America. Uh, what, what what makes you what, where is interest from uh, about South Asia and also recently China? Where does that come from? So I, I grew up in the UK, uh, in in the Midlands in the UK, and where I was growing up, we had a huge uh, Indian, British Indian population, quite a lot of recent um, migrants. My mother was teaching English as a second language to people that had not long arrived from uh, mainly India, but not uh, from South Asia. And I had, a, there were a lot of Indian children at my school. So we used to celebrate Diwali as much as we did um, Christmas. So I've always grown up you know, in a way surrounded by South Asia. And I think that's also, that's a product of being in the UK, the feeling of familiarity 
um, with India, with Pakistan, with Gujarat and so on. It's, it's very easy to do in the UK. In a way, I think, let's say, Japan or South America really do feel like foreign parts of the world coming from the uh, UK. Um, and then later in life, I got very fascinated with economics. And I think going to university, I did undergraduate um, economics, it really brought the two together. So I had a very inspiring, wonderful lecturer uh, for development economics, Professor Peter Nolan in Cambridge. And then a little bit later, a very inspiring um, professor, Professor Mushtaq Khan in Cambridge and in SOAS who taught um, India. So this really married my sort of this long-term simmering interest in, in India with an interest in economics. And then I, I visited India. I found it very fascinating. I did my MPhil dissertation on India, later my PhD dissertation on um, India. And I'm not really a linguist. I, I struggled for a long time to get a, you know, a bit of a feeling for Hindi. And I'm, I, but I'm not really um, a linguist. I'm kind of very jealous of people that are. Um, and, and the advantage of India, Pakistan, is all the academic output, government reports and so on, are produced in English. English is the language used in academia, in, in, in kind of government offices and so on. So that makes it a very accessible uh, uh, place for myself to research. And I'm, I'm not really a field work person, so I don't go to villages and do interviews. So I, you know, I'm a macro person, so I'm more likely to go to a government office than a village. So I've, I've never you know, had to overcome that uh, uh, problem with uh, language that is faced by a lot of scholars and that language that makes a lot of the output in something like China uh, more uh, harder to uh, engage with. And Pakistan, uh, interesting, so I, I did you know, I did a PhD on India and I finished this in, in the mid 2000s. So I'd spent an awful lot of time reading and researching India. And I finished my PhD and had absolutely no knowledge of Pakistan. I mean, you don't study India and then acquire a knowledge about Pakistan just by kind of diffusion and uh, accident. And I got to my first teaching job was at SOAS. I was uh, in the economics department as a lecturer in the economics of South Asia. So my CV said I was also supposed to be an expert on Pakistan and, and Sri Lanka, yet I'd read nothing whatsoever. I'd, I'd learned nothing about Pakistan by that point. So then I made a very conscious effort to um, you get up to speed on, on Pakistan. And then I found the, the process fascinating. I, I think Pakistan is a, a much misunderstood and fascinating uh, development story. Uh, you know, you, you think of Pakistan as being a bit of political chaos, yet Pakistan is one of the most stable countries economically in the world. Until COVID, Pakistan had not had a recession, a year of declining GDP since at least 1960. So, you know, one of the most stable economic stories in the world, but that's the kind of perspective we just don't associate with Pakistan. And, and that's partly the fault of scholars outside, it's partly the fault of scholars in um, Pakistan. And then I also found the comparative method very interesting, very useful. So India-Pakistan comparisons, I think you can learn a lot more about India by the study of, of Pakistan. And for various reasons, the politics and so on, not many people are doing India-Pakistan comparisons. There are scholars of Pakistan in Pakistan and rarely, if ever, get to go to India and interact with scholars of India. So by, by virtue of my passport I'm, I'm holding, I was able to go backwards and forwards quite easily. And then I, you know, I touched a little bit on Sri Lanka and Bangladesh 
uh, over time, but probably kind of quite specific, like um, textile exports from Bangladesh and so on, rather than any kind of general research approach. It's very nice you say that, you know, you can learn a lot by about either countries by being in one of the countries. I, I always keep telling people when they ask me um, what's happening in India and Pakistan, and I say, well, if you want to know what's happening in India, read Pakistani newspapers. And mm. if you want to know what's happening in Pakistan, read Indian newspapers. Uh, so yeah, there's an <laughs> interesting perspective, yes. Which is all the more easier now with everything going online. Yeah. But it, it's still quite remarkable how little scholars know about the other country. I mean, despite the fact everything's now available online, if you're talking to scholars in Lahore, which is you know almost on the border with, with Pakistan, they tend to know very little about uh, economic development in India. But it's very interesting because you, your book is, of course, about China-Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And, and then before we come to that, it's basically mostly on CPAC. Um, because you developed at some point of time into the relationship between China and Pakistan. And it's very interesting that you say that Pakistan is, of course, because something which probably needs a bit of explanation also for me, you say Pakistan is one of the most stable countries Mm. economically. While we, of course, and that's, you know, we hear about IMF loans um, and not today. We, that, that's been going on since, you know, uh, since uh, Ziaul Haq's uh, time or, or, or the money which poured in to f- fight against the Soviets. You know? So it's, I think many viewers who would see this would be, would be puzzled by, by what you're saying. So if you, if you can elaborate that a bit more. Yeah, certainly. So it's, I'm thinking here just purely in terms of, of some of the key economic statistics, particularly growth and inflation. So Pakistan has had uh, average growth rates of about 5% per year since independence. I mean, there's a bit of a problem with the data in the 1950s because Pakistan was putting together its statistical organizations over that decade. So data in the 1950s are quite unreliable or estimated um, to quite a significant degree. Uh, But if you look at economic growth since 1960, Pakistan has not had an economic recession since 1960. India's had a few, Sri Lanka's uh, had a few, Bangladesh has had a few. Uh, And if one looks at statistical measures of the variability of growth around the 5% average, um, Pakistan growth tends to vary not very widely around that average and much less so than most other developing countries. I mean, I haven't done a rigorous study to look at variability of growth across the world but you know growth in Pakistan is is not very variable around the average it hasn't had a recession since 1960 Pakistan hasn't had um, very high rates of inflation it's had a couple of interludes where inflation has touched 20 percent but it's not had the hundreds of percent inflation that has been common in many other parts of the world it's not had long periods of declining GDP per capita as much of sub-Saharan Africa has had it's not had a a decade of, of lost economic growth, Latin America, South America did. In. So what, what, what makes them then have a huge debt at the IMF? Oh yeah, then- Pakistan, I mean, policy making, that is a, a different story. Pakistan does have uh, high levels of debt and, and does has, has had interludes of very unstable governance and so on. But I think the interesting fact here is that we assume 
debt and unstable governance must impact on the real economy. But Pakistan is a fascinating case story because the economy keeps chugging along at a fairly stable rate, despite the fact that chaos in government or in debt or IMF coming and, and going. So, so, but does it mean that the news we read, you know, the, the news we read uh, recently, we read, for example, that uh, there was there was around, what was it, 17, <laughs> j just over uh, 3 billion in uh, foreign reserves left in Pakistan. Uh, the fact that the prime minister of Pakistan frequently visits uh, the Middle East for mm -hmm. loans, uh, for oil, for money, for, for, for investments. Uh, and the fact that almost 25% of the country's population lives below the poverty line. Mm. Of course, statistics of growth, the, the fact that the dollar is, what is it, 180 rupees. Uh, so the statistics of growth and recession put out by the government are, of course, one thing. But uh, these things, how do you, how do you, uh, you know, how do you corroborate both that there is a... Well, I think two things. I think the media are probably a bad way of understanding the process of economic development. I mean, the media inevitably focus on exciting news stories, so tend to be inclined towards a, a crisis uh, discourse or, you know, a, a kind of boom-bust discourse on any economy that they're talking about. So they, they'll focus on debt, they'll focus on the prime minister running to the Middle East to try and get loans, but they don't tend to focus on long-term average rates of growth. And that is not a very exciting um, news story. But I think the, the case of Pakistan um, is interesting because it, it, it shows that economic growth can be driven or the economic growth can often be detached from short-term chaos in um, governance. I mean, the government of, of Pakistan doesn't have um, a kind of strongly interventionist impact in the economy. It raises less than 10% uh, of GDP in taxation. So all sorts of things can be going on at the level of governance, but not really having a fundamental impact on the real economy. I mean, the bizarre traders that dominate a lot of the retail across Pakistan really have, they've, their political influence has meant that the government have very little impact on what they're buying and selling and the prices they're charging. In fact, they don't want to pay for electricity. How much, because when you say stable, there's something which comes to my mind, and that's politically speaking, is that according to many analysts in the world, the most stable institution in Pakistan is the army, mm. um, which, I, which I think you will agree to. Um, how much does it have to, when you talk about stability in long-term economics, how much of it has to do that, a that the most stable institution in Pakistan, the army, is of course in a lot of economics by virtue of um, factories, by virtue of uh, pensions, by virtue of banking system. The army has a huge stake in a lot of things in the economy in Pakistan. So how much of stability of the army would be related to that, that you know, you run things mm. on a wide leash? I think in purely economic terms, although the, the military is engaged in the economy, it runs a number of foundations and has cement factories and schools and so on. 
Uh, it doesn't have, it, we're not talking about the PLA in China, it doesn't have a dominating impact in the economy. It has some niches in certain sectors, but it's not a dominating influence. I suspect the army probably has had a limited role in contributing to the long-run resilience of Pakistan, but the army has stepped in at a number of junctures where uh, perhaps the economy could have tipped into crisis because there were particular problems building up in, in politics. I'm thinking, let's say, Zulfikar Bhutto's nationalization program in the 1970s and tilt towards China and Russia, the army stepped in and pushed Pakistan back to much more of a moderate economic uh, policy role under Zeal ul haq um, When Pakistan was suffering nuclear sanct sanctions after its nuclear tests in 1998, there was a military coup soon afterwards and Pakistan went back to kind of a much more uh, a moderate position. So I think the military probably have contributed to ensuring that there hasn't been a kind of a moments of extremism in politics and kind of pulling Pakistan back to more moderate positions. But I think the issue of Pakistan's resilience is, runs a bit deeper than that. The, the, the story, economic story about Pakistan we should be thinking of is not failure and crisis and catastrophe, but trying to explain, well, why has the economy of Pakistan been so resilient despite all these uh, interludes of bad governance and external shocks. And that's a, a very interesting research question and one that uh, is not often, if ever, um, discussed. So that has always been an important starting point in, in my research that I'm not... Why do you think it, it has been so resilient? Absolutely. I just, you look at the, the variability, long-run growth of 5% uh, over now 60 years or perhaps 70 years, that's not quite on a par with the miracle economies, South Korea, Taiwan, China, of seven, eight, nine percent long-run averages, but it's certainly better, better than most of the um, developing world. And, and as I said, statistics show there's been little variability about that average. So if you look back over any interlude of time in Pakistan, um, Pakistan's economy has probably been growing at about four or five percent. If you look back over the last decade, well, Four or five percent is is the growth rate that Pakistan tends to experience year on year. So I think that is the the resilience of Pakistan is the, the starting point of, of discussion about Pakistan, not the crisis of its economy. Uh, you know. No, it's it, it's very interesting because you know I I'm I'm reminded of of, of the book of uh, of uh, of President uh, Musharraf but also of the book uh, discussing the Afghan war in the 80s, where some of the reasons for um, politically taking Pakistan upon the rather destructive part of Islamic terrorism and, 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 and these things, uh, that some of the reasons and explanations in those books were, well, either we would have done it or we would be finished politically, but many of those reasonings in those books have also been, yeah, we got a lot of money for it and, and we needed the money in order yeah. to build Pakistan. So, you know, it's it's a bit of a contrasting, um, uh, I think I think it was recently uh, that Mush uh, President Musharraf said that uh, we got 10 billion and it's much less than we ought to get. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very, but for that, people would probably have to read your your book to understand that. I'm making a very narrow judgment here about stability. I'm talking purely in economic terms, growth 
uh, inflation. I'm not talking about impact in terms of politics. Pakistan has experienced chronic instability in terms of terrorism and crime, you know, threats to personal safety and so on. Pakistan has very striking problems. I'm talking in narrow terms about economic stability. I think a lot of other people have written in much more detail and depth on areas about politics and, and international relations. Coming, coming, to, coming to politics and economics, how much do you think the, uh, the economy of Pakistan, the economy of India, and of course, the economy of South Asia as a whole could benefit from um, peace, especially between Pakistan and India? Because that has, uh, I always, as a, as a political analyst, I always feel that when there's no peace, when there's war, when there's terrorism, it will have an impact on the lives of people and eventually on economics. You see many times when the relationship between India and Pakistan is, is, is not great, that goods travel through Dubai or to Malaysia to either country. So how much is dependent on peace and how much better could it get in South Asia? <laughs> so I'm, I'm reminded here of a very famous quote uh, from a film, I think it was The Third Man, Graham, adaptation of Graham Greene, one of the characters said, you know, the, the Swiss have had peace for 500 years. What have they produced? They produced a cuckoo clock. Italy's been at war for 500, 1,000 years, and they produced the greatest glories of, of civilization, you know, art and literature, uh, uh, academic writing and so on. So I think peace is po possibly an overrated virtue in terms of generating economic growth and development. I mean, if we looked at the most successful uh, um, economic stories in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, all of them were developing under a massive sense of external threat from neighboring communist countries. So I think war, the fear of war, the fear of uh, you know, external threats can be a powerful motivating and driving force for um, development generally. But the specific question about um, India and, and Pakistan. So this has always been, let's say, an essential daftness at the center of this research, an essential, I don't want to say idiocy, an essential I, comedy at the center of my research about CPEC, that you know, this is a project which is investing $60 billion in building roads and railways and oil pipelines across a mountain, 14,000 uh, feet uh, mountain across a desert in Western Pakistan, uh, in uh, Western China to connect China and, and Pakistan. And a lot of people are very enthused about the potential benefits of this for Pakistan. Yet personally, I've walked across the border with India and, and Pakistan on numerous occasions. You could probably spend about a hundred rupees to pull the fence down between India and Pakistan, and you would open a border which historically has been one of the busiest borders in human history. You know, in 1947, 99%, uh, something like 90%, 95% of Pakistan's trade were with, um, uh, with India. And you open that border, you would connect 200 million people in Pakistan and 1.2 billion people in India, at almost no cost, all the infrastructure to connect India and Pakistan already exists, the roads and, and so on. You would have two economies which for several thousand years have been complementary. You would have people with cultural familiarity, with linguistic familiarity, and within about a month of opening that border, 
very little cost, that would be one of the busiest borders in the world. And there are huge potential gains from trade, from tourism, you know, from everything else between India and Pakistan. You talk to people in Delhi and they dream of going to Lahore for the food and the culture. Um, and people in Pakistan dream of going across the border to watch the, the Premier League cricket mm. in India. So that is the comedy at the center of this research. I think there are massive potential gains uh, to be derived from opening that border, but massive political constraints that have prevented the two governments from- For which we come back to your book, of course, let's, let's the dragon from the mountains, the sea back from Kashgar to Gwadar, which mainly is of, of course about, which probably whatever we were discussing now about peace and the borders, that this particular thing will only complicate that uh, wishful uh, scenario uh, politically. Um, so if you if if come to your book, if you, before I come to your book and the questions of that, if you can explain what it, what you write, what is your point? What from, you say the CPEC from Kashgar to Kuwait, so which exact um, angle have you researched in this and what, what are your conclusions? Okay, so I, I guess I have, you know, about four main focuses of this book. So this is, is about CPEC, this, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. This is a package which has been estimated, let's say a couple of years ago, it was estimated that it would cost $60 billion. Um, the financing of that is a bit uncertain. Perhaps that's something we want to discuss later. But this is investment in energy, so power supply, in roads, railways, and industrial parks, and the, a deep water port of Gwadar in southwest Pakistan, in, in, uh, in Pakistan. Um, so it's a big package of infrastructure investments that China is heavily engaged with in financing and also in construction. So I, I'm looking at my research question was, what impact will that have on the, the long run economic development of Pakistan. So I was very much, I was focused on the infrastructure. I was particularly focused on the roads and railways uh, as part of that project, less so than the energy. I think it's quite clear that the improvement in energy supply in Pakistan will have uh, a positive economic impact. Pakistan has suffered chronic energy shortages and blackouts and so on over the last 10 or 20 years. So I think that was a, in research terms, that was a bit of an open and shut case that better energy will boost Pakistan. So I was really focused on uh, roads and railways and then also the port in, in Gwadar. I was focused on, let's say, with a more narrow economic uh, question. So what impact will infrastructure have on investment, on exports, uh, economic growth, employment, rather than human development? So what impact will it have on poverty, on, on education, on, on issues to do with gender? Um, I was focused on the macroeconomics of that question, so big issues of industrialization, uh, urbanization, and so on. So I know I, I wasn't, I was less focused on, let's say, the microeconomics or livelihoods. I mean, it, it, it's a fairly common finding in the literature that big infrastructure tends to displace quite a few people during its construction, farmers lose livelihoods. And then typically those getting jobs in the completed infrastructure project are not the same people as those that have lost jobs. So there's a, a distribution impact. So I wasn't really focused um, on the micro, on the livelihood issues. Um, I was focused on the economics, not the international relations 
of this project. So some scholars have argued that the economics are not really crucial to, to CPEC, that this is really an international relations project that China wants to get uh, easy access to oil directly from the Middle East through Pakistan, that uh, instead of oil to China having to go around India and round through Southeast Asia, the Malacca dilemma this is known as, and the, 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 the politics of this are all about China trying to get political leverage over uh, Pakistan. So I was, other people have written on this, so I was not really focused on the international relations, I was focused on the economics. So the research question, big infrastructure, what are the long run economic implications of that for Pakistan? And I was focused on uh, infrastructure, the economy, the macro perspective, and I wasn't really focused on the international relations. And how much, uh, because I, I'm, I'm of course not a scholar on, on economics, but for my understanding, how much of, of that can you really detach from all the other things you're mentioning? Um, so uh, from a layman's perspective, I would say that international relations, politics, disturbance, the internal disturbances, uh, people might not happy with it, bit happy with it. How much can you really detach that from the pure economic question? I mean, economists as a, as a profession say, seem to be very good at detaching economics from everything else. I mean, I think economists have created a discipline which is often very inaccessible to people from other disciplines. And been based in social science, the social science department in Oxford, I can testify to the fact that we rarely ever, if ever, saw economists or people from the economics department at social science gatherings. But I think, in principle, you can't separate economics from all the other social science disciplines. In order to understand economic processes, ideally, you should be understanding politics and international relations and anthropology and sociology and uh, development studies. But you know, I, the subject would be easily become overwhelmed if we tried to look at everything. Uh, so just as a you know, practical matter, I focus on the economics, although I, I do draw on other issues, a bit of politics, even a little bit of international relations, a bit of geography, in the book. You, you call it, as, as, as opposed to others in, in, in Pakistan, you, you say that the, CPAC, that the CPAC should not be designated as a game changer for the Pakistani economy. Um, so can you, can, you, can you explain that and why and what that means? Uh, yeah, okay. So one of, the, one of the ways in which I was drawn into this research was the kind of the very powerful discussion that is going on debate about um, CPEC and also the Belt and Road Initiative more generally of which CPEC is one corner. So there are quite a big body of scholars and politicians, particularly in India and the US, who are very critical about CPEC. They argue that China is trying to push Pakistan into debt, China is trying to just get access to oil, China is, is trying to gain political leverage over Pakistan. And then another group of, of journalists and academics and politicians, particularly from China and, and Pakistan, who argue that CPEC has the potential to turn uh, Pakistan into kind of a new Asian miracle economy, a new tiger uh, uh, economy. So I was seeing this kind of very dramatic um, debate, often based more on rhetoric than concrete um, theory and analysis and data, and so I, I got drawn into to thinking about this. 
And my conclusion, it's possibly a little bit of a dull conclusion, is that the two extreme debates are both misplaced, that the CPEC will probably benefit Pakistan, but it won't be a game changer. It's not going to lead to substantial differences in Pakistan's growth rate or its investment rate, um, its employment rate. I mean, just in terms of quantifying it, this is $60 billion over 15 years, so about $4 billion per year uh, in terms of CPEC investment. In a normal year, Pakistan already invests about $40 billion. So this will be a 10% increase in investment. This will take Pakistan's investment rate from about 15% of GDP to about 165 or 17% of GDP. So a small increment in investment. And I'm not aware of any macroeconomic studies that show going from 14 to 16% of GDP investment is going to have a transformative impact on the economy. I mean, comparable stories show that you need to be investing about 30% of GDP, about double what Pakistan is doing, even with CPEC, in order to sustain growth rates of 7 or 8% plus um, per year. So this is going to have a big impact on Pakistan's overall investment rate. You call it investments. Um, of course, I, I, I've read the CPAC and, and, and researched it a bit. There are many people who say, well, it's not only investments. A lot of it is loans. Mm. Uh, loans with interest rates, which need to be paid back at some point of time. Um, and of course, you know, you, you just talked about, um, for example, Washington saying that the, the Chinese are putting Pakistan in debt. Um, and you actually mentioned in your book, there is no sufficient evidence that CPEC will turn Pakistan into a debt-dependent and subservient ally or colony or whatever you like. Um, there are, of course, cases where that has been the case, like Sri Lanka, like in places in Africa. So the, the people in Washington are, of course, not saying something which is totally, you know, out of the blue. Uh, China has had investments, loans in places where they have then, uh, you know, where, where the recipient country has either surrendered sovereignty or independence. Um, why would that not happen in Pakistan? That's one part of the question. And the second part is, well, you call it investments. Is it really only investments or is it also a big chunk of loans? Um, well, I'd just say start with the second question first. I think all of it is investment, but I think the question is, well, how is that investment financed? Is it loans? Is it aid? Is it, are they concessional loans? Uh, you know, how, is the, how are they financed? And um, here is, is one of the big problems with doing the research, that it's actually very difficult to get you know, hard, concrete evidence on those terms and conditions. So a lot of the, you know, what I've called evidence are, uh, culled from newspaper reports, journalists who may or may not have access to reliable inside um, information. Um, I know Pakistan is a, a very vulnerable country in terms of uh, its debt profile, and, and Pakistan has got close to default on its international debt on numerous occasions in the past. Pakistan's had more than 20 agreements with the IMF and it's failed to complete all but one of those. And Pakistan has had numerous occasions on which it's, it's had to reschedule its international debt. So we know Pakistan is vulnerable, and this is an unprecedented amount of 
uh, external resources coming into Pakistan in a, in a relatively short period of time. So I, you put these two together and I think it, it's fair to say Pakistan, this does make Pakistan vulnerable. And this investment is going into long-term projects, roads, railways, energy, which are not going to generate short-term um, it's not low, low hanging fruit. Yeah, debt is piling up, but you know it's not generating immediate impact on exports. And exports have fallen uh, uh, from from Pakistan to China. Exports have fallen since the inauguration of um, CPEC. So it doesn't appear to be generating the foreign exchange necessary to um, repay. And then, as you point out, you know there are some disaster stories of Chinese aid investments at Chambatota in in Sri Lanka, the port and airport, which is a famously disastrous um, story of overseas financing. Uh, but there are, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting to see that when anybody mentions uh, debt failures of Chinese investment, they always come back to this one concrete example of Sri Lanka. And there are lots of examples of very successful um, Chinese investment in um, Ethiopia, for example, has become, you know, has experienced a decade plus of 10% rates of economic growth. It's urbanization, urbanizing, industrializing its SEZ, special economic zones um, with Chinese investment have proven to be very successful. Um, so and I, I think here one has to think about the bigger picture. And this is a kind of a guess I'm making about the future, about international relations. Um, the, see, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is estimated you know, it's going to cost $1 trillion, $8 trillion, nobody really knows. But I think China's long-term ambition with the Belt and Road Initiative is to bind together China, Asia, Central Asia, parts of Africa, Middle East, and Europe into one big super-economy. Um, Bruno Machez calls this you know, the Eurasian supercontinent. So China wants these projects, these early Belt and Road projects in Pakistan and elsewhere to be a success and to be perceived as a but, 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 but once it looks at this as a 20, 30, 50 year project. So it doesn't want to alienate uh, Europe just because it's just in order to screw a few billion dollars out extra out of Pakistan. And sure. China does have a demonstrated record of rescheduling debt, of renegotiating interest rates, which it's done in Malaysia, um, in Myanmar and elsewhere. Surely China, you know, surely China is, has has some uh, ways of looking at why they want to do this, but I'm sure they're not just doing it for world good. Uh, it's, it's not only, but um, when we come to, 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 to CPEC and you talked about Sri Lanka, you talked about Africa, you talk about Malaysia and Pakistan, there's a perception and um, that you know, many of these countries are, of course, as to use your words, are vulnerable. Uh, you just mentioned mm. the, the things which would, for example, put Pakistan in a more vulnerable position. I'm reminded of the words of uh, uh, of one of the uh, ex uh, chiefs of, uh, of of the Pakistani ISI, who once said, "Pakistan is a country which, according to many, has been." failing for the so many years, but it has just not failed yet. You know, it, it, it still keeps going on as it is. Um, so when we, how much do you think that these vulnerable countries have been recipients of Chinese investments, loans, and these projects uh, because of the fact that China 
does not ask very hard questions regarding politics, human rights, uh, mm. and other issues in these countries. Um, because like you said, um, the IMF does, and there, there's a slew of lists or, or conditions ah. which Pakistan needs to fulfill in order to get another loan from the IMF or in order to defer payment, uh, which they have not completed. So just as a layman, it would be, of course, for me thinking that, okay, the IMF asked me a very tough questions. I knew, need to fulfill these, these things. The FATF asked me to change a lot. And here are the Chinese next door, also a big power, which is a bit of a deterrence towards India as well. And they're willing to put a bag mm. of money on the table without asking anything. So how much does yeah. that have to do with that? Yeah, I agree. I think there are two, two narratives here. We can take a positive narrative, narrative and say, well, China is investing in those countries and regions that the rest of the world hasn't touched. So investing in, in Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, Western countries, let, uh, companies left there a long time ago, or investing in you know, uh, conflict-ridden parts of Pakistan. So we could say, well, this is a country which has gone through a very difficult internal process of development and is now taking those lessons to very inhospitable parts of the world and creating infrastructure and jobs in places kind of long abandoned by the West. So I think there's a positive narrative, but I think there's also a, a narrative of concern there. Um, you know, it has taken the IMF and the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, African Development Bank, a long time to become much more open and transparent. But it's it's very visible, obvious how much more transparent and open those institutions are. You go to the website, uh, Asian Development Bank, World Bank's on, and just pull off project reports from their, um, uh, their website about lending for some infrastructure project in Africa or, or, or Pakistan, perhaps. And they have very detailed environmental impact assessments, very detailed analysis of the, the funding conditions, the, the wider conditions attached to the lending. They show how that particular infrastructure project is related to wider economic goals and visions of the, the host uh, government. So you can really see and criticize or praise particular lending uh, infrastructure projects uh, quite easily from those organizations. And that they didn't give up all that uh, uh, transparent information without a struggle. It took a long time for them to engage in transparency. But as I said, it's almost impossible to do that in the case of uh, China. You have to rely on quite anecdotal uh, newspaper uh, reports, get ideas about the funding. I mean, because of the influence of the army in Pakistan, when you put the Chinese government and the Pakistan army together, I mean, this is you know, destined to be a kind of non-transparent uh, exchange. So CPEC negotiation happens behind closed doors at very senior levels, and you quite often find other senior elements of the government have no idea. But is, isn't that on. reason for concern then? Absolutely reason for concern, yes. I mean, you can say against this where you could say, what. Well, China's sustained 10% growth for decades. It's had, it generated some of the fastest reductions in, in poverty in human history. So, okay, China has a demonstrated success story of this uh, development model, but yeah, absolutely this generates um, concerns. And this really is something China should be engaging with is publishing this information on, on lending and, and debt, even if just to prove the detractors uh, wrong. Uh, because yeah, many of this, Many of the uh, people who criticize it actually 
come to this conclusion most of the time that, okay, the, the CPEG or the BRI might be good. It might do this. It might do wonders. The whole thing is that the first step in order to ascertain that is that it must be, become a lot, a lot more transparent so that we can actually examine and see whether, whether it is a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so transparent. Just, so publishing numbers on, on employment. I mean, it's very difficult I mean, one of the crucial impacts of infrastructure is, well, how many local people are employed during construction when the project is completed? How many skilled local people are employed versus uh, how many skilled and, and general employees come from China to build the project? So just publishing um, employment data would be you know, a, a, a great for researchers and you know, help host countries be think better about, well, are skilled people being employed? Is skill transfer... Um, taking place on these projects. So there's a lot of, let's say, low-hanging fruit in terms of, of data that you know, China could be um, publishing or give, giving people easier access to. Coming to those employment numbers, um, CPEC is, of course, a lot of the construction works are actually done by Chinese companies in Pakistan. And a lot of the workers are also Chinese. And what you have seen is that in terms of job creation for the Pakistanis, that has been almost non-existent. Um, yes, there have been a lot of Pakistanis or mainly it's the Pakistani police and army, which have actually been engaged in providing security to the Chinese workers and the Chinese factories. So in terms of employment, um, well, it's China, Chinese money, it's Chinese construction companies, it's Chinese workers. Mm. So, and, and I know you, you talked about, you know, macroeconomics, but me living in Balochistan, a simple Pakistani in Balochistan, what does it give me? Mm. So, I mean, I, I mean, we're completely right that this is about Chinese construction companies and the idea that $60 billion is being handed over by China to... Um, Pakistan is, is a complete misnomer. What happens in practice is that the two countries sign the agreement and then China gives the money to Chinese construction companies in China. Quite often they're state-owned um, construction companies, so the money actually stays with the Chinese government. And then those construction companies come to, to uh, engage in the construction work. So there's not actually large sums of money being transferred. A bit like the Americans say when they say we invested one trillion dollars in Afghanistan, basically they gave that money to American contractors, American soldiers, army, so it's... it's uh. Yes, absolutely. But the, but the other problem is, and this, this goes back to this point about transparency, I have never seen a rigorous study trying to count the number of Chinese or non-Chinese employees in any of these projects. There's a lot of hype, a lot of newspaper reports. You get a lot of dramatic claims at the outset of projects that this will create 20,000 jobs, this will create 100,000 jobs. Uh, the Belt and Road detractors say, oh, no, this is all about Chinese labor being imported. Um, I've only seen just a couple of very ad hoc surveys of employment patterns in Pakistan on these projects. And they tend to show that they do employ a, a good number a good proportion of Pakistan is in the, the low end construction work, like digging holes and breaking up roads, uh, head load workers, uh, you know, building site workers, um, but not many um, 
Pakistan is in more senior levels. So the levels at which skill transfer, project management skills or engineering skill transfer can actually happen. And that seems to be largely borne out in studies of Belt and Road and other Chinese investments in Africa. And decent number of people at the bottom end, the, the day, day laborers, but not many of the more skilled and professional workers um, seem to. So how is this, like you just said, if Chinese money to Chinese construction companies, and then most of the time, those are even state-owned. Then these and and the projects and the big salary takers are also Chinese. So out of this sixty billion, what is really in a circle going remaining in Chinese hands, and what is really in Pakistan? <laughs> I have absolutely no idea, and I'd love to know. Okay. I mean, that would be a fascinating thing to find out. I mean, one of the ways in which infrastructure generates benefits for the local economy is through these spillovers. And that's an expression I use a lot in the book. Are the, is the bitumen, is the steel, the cement being used to build roads and railways, is that being sourced from local firms? I mean, are the Chinese employees, are they spending money in Pakistani shops or are there consumption goods being flown over from um, China? I mean, and eventually it, when the road is finished, is the Pakistani who will travel on that road, mm. the toll tax which he's going to pay, <coughs> is that going to go to the government of Pakistan or is 90% or 80% or 70% actually going to go back to China? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, there is a long history of this issue in, in the history of, of development. I mean, you go back to the 19th century, there were plantations in in, in various parts of South Asia with English manners, uh, managers uh, eating English food and wearing English clothes and all the profits of the, the plantations being exported, all of the, the tea or whatever was being grown being exported. And those plantations existed with almost no spillovers into the, the wider economy. So you can have a very, you know, aren't you, aren't you almost, saying, enclave. Aren't you almost saying that these are, that this is, you know, I don't want to, but is this neo-colonialism? Is this neo-imperialism then in the same way that you're discussing these plantations of the 19th century? I because, mean, because, you know, when, uh, the, when the, we talked in the beginning about the Britishers and about India, yeah, well, of course, the Britishers went there, but the senior people were the Britishers. And yes, the Indians would, you know, on the railway station, pick up the bag, of uh, the the officer and that would you can say that created jobs but it was of course colonialism um, and in the same way is this is this is this neo-colonialism i mean it's such a loaded term that i kind of hesitate to uh use it i mean you know if we look at development in the, the post-war period the most successful stories the south koreas taiwan's their story was, you know, driven by, you know, technology coming from overseas, investment coming overseas, but the government very effectively are using that investment and, and making sure it generated linkage. Yeah, but that's dependent, of course, on the government. Economy. That's dependent on how good the government in that country is. I'm yeah, so I, I, I think, you know, if you want to call this neocolonialism or globalization, whatever you call it, I mean, it's, it's very similar what Pakistan today 
China in the 1980s, Japan in, in you know, earlier years, South Korea in the 1950s, very similar things were going on in terms of uh, the development of these international relations and foreign direct investment influence of foreign governments and so on. But the difference is, is the domestic government able and willing to use domestic policy tools to ensure that that investment is generating linkages and uh, uh, wider benefits for the and, local. And is it? I mean, that's my concern. I don't see any sign that Pakistan is, is doing this. I mean, we're at a very early stage in the process at the moment because this is a 15-year project. It's not scheduled for completion until 2030. The special enterprise zones, nine of them are being planned around Pakistan. These are quite at a quite early stage of developments. So we can't really make definitive judgments about whether this infrastructure is going to stimulate domestic industrialization and employment growth. That's something we really have to think about and guess about. But my answer would be, I think, clearly not. There are no plans to use industrial uh, any form of industrial policy to ensure that linkages are retained within Pakistan. Pakistan is, is pushing towards freer trade with China. Um, there's no sign that uh, Pakistan is pushing, let's say, textile exports to um, uh, China. So utilizing the Belt and Road to boost exports to China, kind of no indications of that. So it, it doesn't appear that China, uh, Pakistan has the willingness, the capacity or the interest in utilizing these kind of domestic policy tools, replicating the earlier success of the developmental uh, success stories in order to maximize benefits from CPEC. So you would say that... Uh, the 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 failure uh, of of you know what we discussed like you know the success stories of these countries after the second world war which went uh, to to become very very stable economies the if if so looking at Pakistan now you would see that not repeating that not happening yeah absolutely so even China's own history in the 1980s. China opened its doors to foreign investment, but set very strict criteria on that foreign investment. So they said, you can come in, but you must engage in joint, a joint venture. You must transfer technology. You must employ Chinese people in senior positions. Within five years, let's say you must source 90% of your inputs from uh, local firms. Uh, so therefore you must help local firms to upgrade their production in order so they can produce inputs for your, the cars you're building. And you must export a certain proportion of your output. So things like joint ventures or local content requirements or technology transfer or employing senior people in senior positions, uh, I don't see any indication that that's happening in, in Pakistan. Will, do you see the CPEC then will it be a failure? Because 2030 is already, I think, a bit too ambitious. Absolutely. Uh, so be delayed. Um, what do you think? Will it? Well, I think it will be a failure if by failure uh, you're thinking of the very optimistic claims about CPEC, that it will be a game changer, that it will transform Pakistan into a new miracle economy. But I think if we rein back those um, expectations, and we think of this as a modest increase in investment in, you know, in energy, which Pakistan clearly needs more energy, in improving Pakistan's road and railway. And I, I think uh, empirical economic studies show that generally that type of infrastructure has positive economic impacts. I think this will provide a modest boost to Pakistan's economy um, over the uh, the longer term. So. 
a, a failure relative to exaggerated expectations, but it will probably be uh, provide a modest boost to Pakistan. And, and, at, and at what price? That is, dare I say, the elephant in the room that we're not really able to make judgments about that because we don't know the terms and conditions of the financing. And then I think that will inevitably take us away from pure economics into the realm of politics and international relations. I think China has absolutely no incentive to let Pakistan go bankrupt or default on its debt as a consequence of CPEC. I mean, what benefit from China? It probably could screw a couple of extra billion dollars out of Pakistan. But as I was mentioning earlier, Pakistan... One of the benefits, of course, could be, and that's also a question, is maybe in some point of time, um, make Gwadar uh, a Navy base. Mm. Uh, so that, you know, because I, I know it's pure economics we are discussing, which is not my greatest field of research, but it is, of course, so much intertwined with politics. So when you say, yeah, economic, I, I get your point. China is not going to screw a few billions out of Pakistan. But politically and internationally speaking, a Navy base in Gwadar, that is, of course, very interesting for the Chinese. And not today, maybe 10 years, 20 years, 30 years later from now. Uh, so do you think that could happen, can happen? Absolutely. If, if the last 2,000 years of human history is anything to go by, the flag always follows trade. The Dutch did, well, the Romans did this, the Dutch did this, the English did this, the French did this, the Americans did this. So, of course, the China, in the longer term, the Chinese are going to do this. I mean, they get their oil from the Middle East. Um, of course, you know, they have a military presence now in, in Djibouti. I mean, after uh, gaining hold of the, the you know, Hambatota in, in Sri Lanka, not long after that, um, a, a Chinese nuclear submarine docked at the port and, and caused quite a, a stir in uh, international politics. So at the moment, Gwadar and various others of those bases, they call it the string of pearls theory, um, they're not military ready and they're not likely to be for a long term. But of course, that's, I think, inevitably the way the process is going to evolve, that China has massive trading links with the global economy, like the rest of the world countries that do have it, wants to have a presence to ensure the stability of that. So, so you really think that... Regions like the Middle East. That you really think that at some point of time, it is inevitable that Gwadar will turn into a naval base for the Chinese? Whether you it's a naval base or... Um, Army with that can be utilized by the military, the Navy, I think that's absolutely inevitable. As I said, 2000 years of human history says the flag follows trade. Yeah, but if you, if, if you look at that, because that is what, what even some analysts in Pakistan say, is that future generations might, you know, come to know of how this CPAC is structured, how much needs to be paid back and what needs to pay, be paid back. And, Gwadar, of course, might then be the currency in terms of becoming the naval base, the army base or whatever. Of course, also considering the very strained relationship between uh, China and India. Mm. Um, so uh, as you know, you know, India's nuclear deterrence was not actually built against Pakistan. It was basically because of China becoming mm. So th that is a very strained and also a very strange relationship. They have a lot of 
you know, hunky-dory stuff going on as well in, in terms of business and economics, but they are also at each other's throats at, at, at different borders. Um, so, but do, this, this is what you say, is there any evidence that that, in your book, have you found any evidence that Gwadar 2040 might turn into something like that? I mean, I haven't found concrete evidence, partly because I wasn't really looking for it. I was focused on the economics. I mean, just from my much more general reading of, of history, I just feel there's an inevitability about it. When a, a country is rising in the way China is engaging with international trade, is, is getting this you know, crucial reliance on raw materials from Africa, from the Middle East, then inevitably China is going to want to secure stability of those resource flows. So I, I see a kind of greater military presence in other parts of the world as an inevitability in China. So in, your, in your opinion, how much of that is, um, how much of that is the intention? Uh, and how much, so how, in terms of understanding the BRI, how much of it is really economics and how much of it is really expansionism in terms of military world power, global power? I mean, I, I think uh, China is very pragmatic in, in those terms. I mean, it, it thinks 20 years, it thinks 50 years. But I do think China's ultimate goal is to push the US out of Eurasia and for Eurasia to turn into a China-dominated uh, like supercontinent. One might say this is rewinding history back to you know, a, a thousand uh, uh, AD and kind of returning to a kind of historical norm. But I think that's China's long-term goal. And I think a lot of its steps are, are, are with that uh, in mind. So I don't think it's going to uh, militarize Guadal prematurely because it, it doesn't want to frighten off Western Europe, that it wants to approach Western Europe as an economic success story, talking about trade and investment and point to successful economic stories in in Ethiopia, perhaps in Pakistan, and so engage, you know, it signed a Belt and Road Agreement with Italy, for example. So it wants to gradually encroach into the and sign agreements with the big European economies and draw them into its trade, investment and, and transport orbit. So I think that's China's long-term goal. So I think premature militarization is probably not going to happen. I think China is going to approach much more softly and do this with technology, with trade, um, investment and so on. So but, but in the beginning, we of course talked about the fact that you said, well, there's no sufficient evidence that CPEC will turn a country like Pakistan into a debt dependent country, mm. which I get from your point, like the percentages of, of GDP, which they are putting in, but a subservient ally then, because you also say there's no evidence they will turn into a subservient ally. But if, if their ultimate goal is to indeed at some point of time, get these military outposts, then it does become a subservient ally, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think there's a problem here in forgetting that Pakistan also has agency or potential agency. We can get conditioned talking about China doing this, China doing that, and forgetting about local agency. And here I think the case of Ethiopia is very constructive. So Ethiopia, like Pakistan, is surrounded by problematic countries in terms of uh, terrorism, you know, international uh, uh, problematic countries, Somalia, um, it's, uh, it's landlocked, but it also oil in South Sudan is very important. 
and Ethiopia has quite a strong government. But I think Ethiopia has very carefully, very sensibly positioned itself at a slight distance from all these competing influences. So there has been a lot of Chinese involvement in investment in infrastructure, but there's also a lot of Saudi, uh, the big Saudi role, big US role, big UK role, big EU role. And the Ethiopian government plays them off against each other, you know, lets them compete against each other, is never beholden to one over the others, uses, has used its status as a you know, a, a, a force for stability in the region as a, a kind of a trade, as an influence, it has influence in the rest of Africa. So it's used that influence to play off all the donors and traders against each other. Whereas I think if we think of, instead of what China's doing, if we think in terms of Pakistan agency, I think Pakistan potentially could perform a similar role that Ethiopia is doing. So instead of becoming subservient on China, it says to China, you need us because of your the problems with it, uh, uh, radical Islam you have in Xinjiang. Um, you don't want problems from Afghanistan filtering into China. We have a diplomatic and, and military and cultural outreach into that region. We will do this for you, but in return, we want infrastructure on these conditions. And then I think it can talk to the US and say, look, China is giving us this. We would like to engage with the US aid and we will do so on these conditions. And it can also talk to Saudi Arabia. It can also talk to you know, EU, to Britain, and, and kind of play off all these uh, donors and learn from Ethiopia. So I think rather than the question, will Pakistan turn into a subservient uh, relations with China? I think the more interesting idea is what are the constraints or the potential agency for um, Pakistan? to be able to play a much more proactive role with all these other countries and, and strengthen its own position. I mean, we're not talking about Finland. here, we're talking about a nuclear power, 200 million people, the sixth most populous country in the world, which is geopolitically one of the most important points of, of, of global uh, politics. So Pakistan should be able to utilize that kind of geopolitics or IR or diplomatic leverage to its own benefit. And I think it, it just doesn't do that as well as it should. The Americans might not agree with you, <laughs> but um, coming to that, you, you talk about the nuclear power, big population, and exactly okay. that is also the concerns of some people. So we come uh, and now, now focusing a bit on Gwadar and, and that area, you saw, of course, massive protests in Gwadar, uh, where the people are basically asking for their rights. Uh, then you talk about Pakistan, you know, the Americans, for example, I think Bolton just as recent as two months ago said there is a, there is a possibility the nukes of Pakistan coming into the hands of, of, of terrorists. Um, then you have the FATF behind their back. Then, of course, now you, know, you touched upon Xinjiang and the Uyghur issue over there. Uh, now you also have a Taliban regime in um, in, uh, in Afghanistan. Um, and you have the Pashtun Tahafuz movement, which is also a massive movement in Pakistan, also uh, finding its foothold. So first of all, one question is, those are issues which are not, which are of considerable moment, that these are considerable issues you have. Um, and then on the other hand, China has its issue of Xinjiang province, where according to, and again, you might correct me, but according to 
well reliable independent sources they're committing real human rights successes over there um, so how how do these things affect the cpac the long-term goals of cpac and of course pakistan's agency because pakistan has used its agency the for example with Zaul Haq, they used its geopolitical power, got money from the Americans, but then they also, you know, created the Frankenstein's monster. And now that agency can be used with the Chinese, but then Xinjiang is a problem, Afghanistan is a problem. So how do you see these things impacting this? I mean, again, this is really not my area of expertise, but let's say that the Taliban government in um, Afghanistan, this is a government to which Pakistan has very close military secret service, you know, uh, political relations. So that can only strengthen um, Pakistan's influence in the rest of the region. So potentially that could increase Pakistan's diplomatic leverage with China. China now needs Pakistan even more to quell any unrest in Western China and to stop any problems spilling over from Afghanistan into um, Western China. So if Pakistan wants to renegotiate the terms and conditions of CPEC. Well, this is just a, a big diplomatic leverage Pakistan has now acquired that could help Pakistan do exactly that. And I think it's it's perhaps it's often forgotten that CPEC is not in the end just about Pakistan's ability to trade or engage with China. It also potentially opens up trade and other links between Pakistan and Central Asia. And there are almost no trade and investment links between Pakistan and Central Asia uh, at the moment. And there's a, a huge possibility, I mean, very kind of cultural similarities, Islam uh, and so on, and they're landlocked and presumably they might like access uh, through Pakistan to Gwadar. So that is a big area of potential economic and political engagement for Pakistan. So that, that, that's, of course, economic. CPEC. If you have Gwadar protests, if you have... PTM, if you have Taliban spill, of course, Pakistan has a say now in Kabul, but you can equally have Taliban spillovers in Pakistan. We have seen that with the TTP. So in terms of terrorism, extremism and unhappy people, that is an issue over there. And then you have, you know, just thinking there have been noises of uh, extremist groups, Islamic groups whispering about the Muslims of Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, Pakistan has leverage over these extremist groups because they're mostly connected with their army or their, their secret services. Uh, but you, you have had a few attacks on Chinese nationals in Pakistan. Uh, you have had an attack, I think even in Karachi, you have had an attack on a Chinese bus. There were nine or 12 Chinese. So this... What if this spills over and, and how, could, how much effect can that have on, on this relationship then? Ah, absolutely. I mean, the, I think you know, the idea of infrastructure projects have been called or, or Belt and Road CPEC as win-win solutions. It's an expression often used in the political rhetoric. I mean, which is a complete nonsense. Big infrastructure always generates distributional impacts. Even if the net, there is a net benefit, some people lose, some groups win, some lose. So there will inevitably be distributional impacts of the, the uh, CPEC in, in Pakistan. And it depends on 
what happens to those losing out or those groups who don't feel they're participating in the project? Are they compensated by the government? You know, sometimes infrastructure projects might guarantee a, mem a job for every member of a, a displaced family, which has proved quite successful elsewhere. Are they going to be compensated in any way or are they going to be left disaffected and as potential recruits for um, radical organisations? And if CPEC discontent becomes uh, a merit to religious radicalization, then I think there could be huge problems for um, Pakistan. And do you see in your research, have you seen a lot of discontent, CPAC discontent, especially in provinces like Balochistan and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa? So nature of my research, I'm looking at a very aggregate um, level. So I see some criticism about CPEC from some regional groupings. I mean, a lot of um, politicians from Balochistan mentioned are very critical of CPEC and there's a long history of discontent in Balochistan against the central administration. Um, so I, I do see some criticisms, but I don't have any particular insights in sort of on the ground anthropology or, or kind of grassroots about whether this is, is leading to kind of some kind of angry radicalization, whether there's there going to be attacks on CPEC infrastructure or, or more attacks on, on Chinese um, nationals. And how much discontent have you seen, for example, and I'm not talking institutionally, but maybe on a an, on an more embedded level within, for example, the army of Pakistan or the politicians of Pakistan, uh, in terms of China's treatment of Muslims in Xinjiang, because as you know, Pakistan is the only Muslim country with a nuclear bomb. Mm. Pakistan has always been very, or at least uh, sh shown as if they have always been very concerned about the Muslims in Palestine, in, um, in Kashmir, in Chechnya. Uh, this is very next door. So, um, of course, a lot of it is politics. I understand that. But how much concern have you really seen among these circles for these Muslims? I've probably had one or two private conversations where people have expressed concerns, but I have never heard any concern expressed in public by the army or, or politicians. No, in public not, but in private you have in heard? Private one or two, yeah. And uh, you think that can grow or that is just Pakistan is pragmatic enough? I, I, don't, I doubt it will grow. I mean, Pakistan feels itself to be wedded to you know, the marriage with China and you know, the recent conflict with India a couple of years back, the border skirmish, there was very clearly a perception in Pakistan that we have to rely on China about this. And, and one of the consequences of CPEC is that it presumably it will make military imports from uh, China easier. And China is very proactive in protecting Pakistan in various international fora about you know, Pakistan not being criticized for various uh, by India and so on. So I don't think Pakistan is going to make problems about you know, uh, Islam. Is it, is it then really this, this CPAC? Because now you explain these things, of course. Could you, could you say, could one say that CPAC is much more of a military cooperation project than it is really economic? I think that is a conclusion that you could draw from my research. So my research, as I said, was mainly focused on the economic. And I said, despite all this 
uh, you know, all these all this drama about it and big discussions. I think it will have a it's actually much smaller than most people imagine uh, that it's going to probably have a moderate positive boost to the economy. So then you say, well, what is the purpose then, of DPEC? And I think then you can turn to the international relations arguments and say, well, maybe the big stories about CPEC are about you know, uh, in uh, relations between Pakistan and China against India or Chinese access to oil or veto uh, power in the UN. Yes, quite, quite possibly. So yeah. I think I'm, I'm talking about the economics, but I think the lack of an exciting economic story well, can then make it easier to turn our attention to some of these stories in, in international politics, international relations. So in essence, you say the economic success story is highly exaggerated. It, it can have, it, it will make a few dents, but it's not gonna turn uh, the world around. Um, that's your conclusion of your book, of yes. course. Yeah. Um, so by that logic, you do say that of course, also when you say, well, 2000 years of history, by that logic, you say that, yes, this, this is indeed a, a more a marriage of military cooperation, diplomatic cooperation, and building. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a scholar of any of these. I, I, I read some of the stuff, but it's not my place to make judgments. But, you know, I, I think, given my story about the economics, I think it makes it easier for scholars of international relations to push the argument that this is all about um, IR, this is all about oil or whatever the case may be. I'm not really, I don't really feel qualified to make uh, past judgments about those kind of views. I mean, I have, I, I mean, I personally have no idea the difference between a port and a, you know, a naval base, something that's ready for military ships. I have no ability to pass judgment on that yeah. other than, uh, you know, waffling about but, it. But do you think your conclusions and your research uh, will benefit uh, international relations expert, military expert to actually say, well, here is an economist who is saying in terms of economy, it is not that big of a deal. Mm. But in terms of, so we think because in economy, it's not a big deal, but in military bases, in Gwadar, uh, the string of pearls, uh, the veto rights in the UN, uh, the helping each other at the FATF and India yeah. as a common enemy. So we think yeah, that it would help those arguments. It probably would also help pro-Chinese arguments about, well, Chinese are giving this project to the world and they're not looking for massive economic returns that, you know, this is, uh, they want to, you know, create trade and investment opportunities and bind Eurasia together in a kind of peaceful big trading block. So you could take the more negative views, but I think, you know, potentially also create space the more positive views. But I think my discussion does push the argument back out of economics into other uh, realms for, for positive or negative. So you, you, you have done basically the really, as you, as you discussed in the beginning, the very niche macroeconomics in terms of GDP. Mm -hmm. And then these arguments can be taken by other groups in terms of international relations, human rights, and, and what have you. Now, coming to, you know, the end of this interview a little bit, um, how will this influence uh, the relation uh, between India, China, India, Pakistan, China, Pakistan, India, and maybe the US? At some point of time. Gracious. Yeah. Isn't, isn't this going to be then indeed the shifting of the 
because China and India have, of course, a strained relationship, but have also been close in some mm. way. And, and Pakistan and the U.S. have been close. And it, it seems as if these tables are turning. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I guess there's kind of a few different stories going on here. I think CPEC is a, an, a consequence of, of the ebbing U.S. role and a cause of it in, in Pakistan. I mean, this is one of the things that made me think about CPEC, was going to Pakistan very regularly over 15 or so years. And when I went to conferences 15 years ago, there was always an IMF present, presence. All the discussion was about structural adjustment and budget deficits and macro stabilization. And 15 years later, you see Chinese presence at, at these conferences and the discussion is about infrastructure. The discussion is about economic uh, uh, growth. So you see this very visibly, you see this change in the influence of, of China and, and Pakistan. Um, I think, again, there's a, a sense in which we may forget the agency within India and Pakistan and think this is all about what the US is doing and what China is doing. I mean, I think the reason why India and, and um, uh, Pakistan, because I, I think under, under um, uh, Modi and Sharif a few years ago, there was a real possibility of some sort of peace agreement of opening the border to a greater extent. You, you had a, a Gujarat, um, a kind of religious right Gujarati leader, uh, Modi, nobody's ever going to accuse him of going soft on Pakistan, and you had a similar religious conservative Punjabi um, based chief minister in Pakistan, again, representing a bit more of the religion. And again, nobody was going to accuse him of going soft on India. And they both represented big business located either side of the border. So they had the political capacity and the personal, let's say, political uh, charisma or capital that could have enabled them to open the border and promote peace between the two countries. And again, there's a kind of shroud of mystery about why this didn't happen, but probably this was the army vetoing the situation in Pakistan, fearing that you open the border, hundreds of millions of people will be surging backwards and forwards, and the rationale for Pakistan army suddenly gets much. So you think the army is, of course, uh, while looking at its institutional interests, the army vetoed peace between. Yeah, I, I, I think I think the reason India and Pakistan still have that that degree of hostility, a lot of that comes from the Pakistan army and some other groups probably in um, India that you know, prevent the politicians, even those with the possibility and the will and the charisma and the capital like Modi and Sharif to do it. So I think the real fundamental cause of the regional tension comes from India versus Pakistan, not. Um, China. It's also, it's interesting when you look at trade statistics between India and China, they've boomed in a way they haven't done in Pakistan and China. Pakistan-China trade is negligible. It's much, much less than uh, uh, China-India. Uh, there is, of course, talk of the fact that the Sharif might be coming back. Uh, uh, that's but, that's uh, Pakistan that, politics. Always talk. That is, of course, one issue which India objects to with specific regard to CBAC. Mm -hmm. And that is that it passes through the region of Jammu and Kashmir. Yeah, yeah, that, that is a, a kind of political red flag for um, uh, India, which would make any engagement, which is you know, one of the reasons India has refused to join the Belt and Road and has sponsored some competing initiatives and so on. And Kashmir is... You know, a big red flag for both 
a bit of an irreconcilable red flag for both countries. Yeah, that that does complicate matters a lot. In terms of CPAC, but you yeah. do see that you could see, you know, if, for example, Anawaz Sharif comes back, again, there is always the chance of the army vetoing it, but you could see some uh, talks, peace, again. Uh, I mean, if, if you look at the last few decades, I mean, that moment when Sharif and Modi were both relatively fresh in power, had a new mandate. and Walking hand in hand in Lahore. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I think that was the moment. I think if Sharif comes back and Modi's been in power 10 years, I think a bit of that early you know, honeymoon period will have been lost. But I think if anybody could do it, it would probably be those two um, But they need to get, I think, whatever secret services exist in India and, and the military in Pakistan do need to be on or not veto it for it to be a, a possibility. Mm. It's also often forgotten that China occupies or uh, has taken over large parts of Kashmir. And this is not, uh, this is not discussed in, in Pakistan. No, I think the main reason China has is, is quite some part, I think 17% of, of the of the erstwhile princely state of Jammu and Kashmir. Uh, and irrespective of the fact that it's still land and I, I, I believe that it's occupied, I think the main reason why it's not so much in the public discourse is because it's a very inhabitable place. It's, it's, there are no people living there mm. except for tribes who pass through it. You know, when you have people living in a place Then you have, of course, governance, then you have protests, then you have opinions. This is more of a place which is basically, yeah, nobody lives there and, and some tribes pass through it once in, in, in a year. So I think that is maybe one of the reasons. Um, and resourcefully, it's not very interesting. As you know, Gilgit Baltistan is, of course, hugely resourceful. Um, uh, and, and in terms of uh, the rest of Kashmir, there are a lot of water resources. I, I, get, I guess the power potential of Gilgit Baltistan could provide, you know, half of India and, and the whole of Pakistan with electricity. So I think mm. that that is probably one of the reasons that it's not so much in the discourse, while it should be, of course. Mm. But it, it seems to illustrate that India and Pakistan can live with some sort of partition of Uh, Kashmir, given other kind of political conditions and trade and investment being right and so on. So, apart from the rhetoric uh, in both countries, I think, uh, yeah, well, you know, apart is administered by Pakistan mm. and legally claimed by India. Then there is a part with India. Then there is a part with China. I think, a, you know, uh, a lot would 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 need to happen in this world. Will those equations change? At the Absolutely. same time, I must say that if I would have been put in a coma in 2001 and woken up today and known that Taliban is again in power, I, I would have never thought that we had a 20-year-long war in Afghanistan just to put the Taliban back in power again. So strange things can happen. But yeah, I, th I think so that it is as it is uh, for, for now. Uh, and, and, and like you said that, For you know, I think I think to to wrap this up a little bit, the interview is that not a huge deal economically. Maybe potentially international relations, military-wise, yes, but economically, 
quite exaggerated. Yes. Yeah, both sides of the highly critical and the highly positive uh, are both exaggerating the, the merits and defects of CPEG. Positive, but not transformative. Hmm. And do, do you think there's a need for, uh, will, will the Chinese in the growing, because your book was of course written before COVID, hmm. but in the growing COVID situation with a lot more criticism coming Chinese ways, Will the Chinese be pragmatic, as you call it, to, uh, to assuage much of this criticism in the different recipient countries? For example, would it do good? Would a Xi Jinping suddenly visit Gwadar or, you know, increase jobs or things like that? Well, I think China has proved pragmatic in various other um, uh, countries. When Mahathir came back to power in Malaysia on a very critical Chinese platform, uh, he was quite able to renegotiate some of the trade and conditions. You know, Ghana has done it in, in West Africa. So China has proved pragmatic. And I suspect, given the impact of uh, COVID on the global economy, there will be a need to rein back some of the projects, refinance other projects. And I think this is probably going to be and then the consolidation or reining back of some of the ambition of CPEC is probably going to be uh, the story we'll hear in the next um, few years. And, and one of the conclusions of your books, that it's highly intransparent, it mm. needs to be much more transparent. Do you, do you see some uh, movement there then coming also? Will it become a bit more transparent? I mean, I'm not really aware of any, any movement, but, you know, I kind of live in hope. Mm. China will start publishing the environmental impact assessments and the, the, the um, project analysis and you know the cost proper costings and the terms and conditions of the loans. Absolutely, yes. I, I would hope, but okay. I, so as a researcher, but I kind of you know my head doesn't imagine it's going to happen. So. <laughs> so we can look forward to a new book. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> That's the plan. Matthew, well, thank you. Thank you. Long very enough. Much. Uh, it, it was a pleasure. Uh, Thank you. Really enjoyed the, the chat. I must say that, you know, uh, I, my apologies for not being the uh, interviewer with a lot of economic questions. That is... Uh, for, not for at all. Sentence. Very good, good to chat. I mean, <laughs> social sciences should talk to each other much more often. So as an economist, it's great to talk to. You know, a, a scholar from international relations, international politics. And well, Thank you for joining us. And hopefully, hopefully we can have you soon but then in amsterdam uh, ah, so that we look forward to that very much so that we could go to a chinese restaurant ah, <laughs> sounds dreamy i would love to come thank you very much matthew thank you very much thank you. great to chat this morning Bye.